Well, good morning, church. Wow, he responded. Y'all, yeah. (laughs) You're not even from the South. It's good to be here this morning, and we're wrapping up this series, which means next week we start a new series, and it's called Marked. What are the distinguishing characteristics of people that follow Jesus Christ? We have been marked by Jesus to make a mark in the lives of others. And so we're going to talk, what does that mean? We've been forgiven in order to forgive others. We've been loved to love others. We've been uh, served by God to serve others and, and things like that. So that'll lead us right up into Easter. And so just encourage you to just be out there and invite people. I tell you what, this, this was great this morning. I am not like a super emotional guy. Um, I get excited up here sometimes, but generally I'm just pretty... But I had to stop singing so I didn't get hoarse, you know? I just, it just felt like there's some energy in the room. Here's the thing. If you sit in the back every Sunday, you don't understand this. You got to sit in the front. So you hear, you know, 100 people behind you just, just lifting their voices in praise. And it just, it's just wonderful. So it's great being here. We've been talking in this series uh, about having a breakthrough life. Do you want a mediocre, run-of-the-mill, normal, boring life? No, I hope not. It's not the kind of life I want. Uh, so many people are struggling, depressed, just, just anxiety, difficulties, hardships. How do you break through that and have the life that Jesus talked about in John 10, 10? I have come that you might have life and that you will have it abundantly or have it to the full. And so we've been talking about that breakthrough life and, and these four steps to get there. In the first week and second week, we talked about identity and thinking, and those kind of go together. I am not, my identity is not a middle-class, middle-aged, white American male. That is not my primary or secondary identity or even down three or four. My identity, I am who God says I am. I'm not who I think I am. I'm not who you say I am. I am who God says I am. And that is a change in thinking. And so 1 Peter 1, verse 1, it says, you are chosen by God. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are chosen by him. Later on, it says you're his special possession. You're part of a royal priesthood, a part of a holy nation. You're born again. You're, You're an exile and a foreigner in this world and all of these different things telling us who we really are. And, and that's how we got to think. We got to think about the right things in the right way. We got to think about what's true and not get caught up into the cynicism and criticism and, and negativity that, that is so prevalent all around us. How you think determines how you live. And so we talked about how do we need to think biblically and fill our minds with what's true and good. And, and that, those were the first two weeks. Then the next two weeks... Uh, was purpose and community. What, why are you here on earth? And your purpose, we say as a church, is to make more and better disciples of Jesus Christ. And in 1 Peter, he's saying, through your words and through your works, you're to point people to Jesus. Through your words and works, you're to make more and better disciples. That just, that just isn't our purpose as a church. That's just not my purpose as a pastor. That's every single one of us. That's why you're here. You're not here to earn money Monday through Saturday, and you're not here to be, a, to be a great dad or to be a great husband or wife. You're here 
to point people to Jesus Christ through your words and works. And that is not multiple choice. You can't talk about Jesus and not live for him, nor can you live for Jesus and not talk about him. Peter's saying we need to speak up and we need to live what we're saying. That's our purpose, and we can't do that alone. We need a community. We need the church. We need other people to help us do that, and then we need to help other people. There's 32 times in the New Testament where there is a command that we something one another, that we love one another, uh, comfort one another, be kind to one another, encourage one another, um, bear one another's burdens over and over again. And you can't serve other people, you can't fulfill those commands without other people. And so how, how important it is to those two things, fulfill our purpose with others helping us and then helping them. Uh, I'm so encouraged by dozens of people every Sunday and they come Sunday morning not just to be encouraged and to be served by those here. They come to serve. And I see the blue Bridgewater B kids on, Ron, they're wearing, yeah. And, and others of you, and my, my daughter was in the nursery and so many greeting. And, you know, we had a woman in our first service, Jean Pierce, first time back in a long time. And she was at the door greeting. She's like, I got my vaccination, man, and I'm ready to go. I'm back. I want to serve, not just be served. And, and I want to serve others. So that's, that's how we have a breakthrough life. But here's something that we need to understand. Attaining excellence in our spiritual life is easy compared to maintaining it. And this kind of illustrates that point. Number of starting quarterbacks, Super Bowl champions. Over 50 Super Bowls, I was surprised how few starting quarterbacks in all those Super Bowls. Only 28. That is an elite group of men. But, but attaining the best in the world kind of recognition is easier than maintaining it. 28 have won, 12 have won two or more, um, four have won three or more, and only one guy, right, Tom Brady, has won more than four. He's won seven Super Bowls. Uh, attaining greatness is one thing. Maintaining it is much, much harder. So this breakthrough life that we have, how do we, how do we stay there? All right, you know your purpose, you're involved in a community, you're serving other people, you're trying to think about the right thing, you know that, man, my spiritual life, so much, almost all of it is between my two ears and my thinking, and so, and so you're there, but how do you continue and persevere is a biblical word? How do you stand in that? And 1 Peter 5, verse 5 says this, in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. And I just want to stop there. This, this connecting phrase in the same way is saying, what I just told the elders goes for you. And what I'm telling you goes for the elders. The first four verses of 1 Peter, he's talking to the elders and he calls them pastors or shepherds. He calls them, their job is to bishop or oversee and he uses all of those terms interchangeably. The pastors, which are elders that are bishoping and overseeing ministry and shepherding people. He says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to be eager to serve. And then he goes on and he says, okay, and, and those of you who aren't spiritual leaders, and maybe you aren't old, okay, he says, in the same way, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes 
the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. And so here's how we stand. Here's how you stay where God wants you to stay spiritually in your life. We stand in humility. We need to be humble. The, The problem with this statement and command, though, is that we often don't recognize pride within our own lives. We see it in others. It's the illness that makes everybody sick except that one who has it. So when someone else is proud, we're like, Whoa, you know, but, but my own pride, difficult to see. So how do we know that we're standing in humility? And, and just looking at the verses previous, here's how we know. Number one, ask yourself this question. Who have you served recently? So going back to, to verse 3 of chapter 5, He's saying, well, verse 2, be shepherds of God's flock, be pastors of God's flock that's under your care, watching over them, overseeing them, or bishoping them, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock in the same way. He's saying, spiritual leaders, they need to be servants. And in the same way, you who are younger in the faith, you need to also be servants. So who have you served recently? If you can only think of a handful of people and occurrences from this last week where you have served other people, if you can only think of a handful, you are probably a very arrogant person. Now you might say, well, no, no, I I don't think... You know, I'm depressed. I'm, I'm like, I, I don't think I'm an awesome person. It's, pride is not about how, how great your self-esteem is. Pride is about how obsessed you are with you. And, and if you're humble, you're thinking of other people. So here's an example of this in my own life. On Thursday, Thursday's my day off. Um, it was Thursday morning, and Becky came around the corner and she said, hey, the neighbors, I noticed the neighbors are stuck in their driveway. We should go help them. To which I responded, I still have my pajamas on. (laughs) By the time I get my jeans on and get out there, their driveway is flat. You know, they're going to be out. It can't be that bad. You know, and she's like, well, I'm going to go out and help them. So I'm like, all right. So I run upstairs and get jeans on, take my, you know, checkered flannel pajamas off that some of you go to Walmart in, but I will not be seen outside my house wearing. So I go out, and sure enough, they're still stuck, and, I mean, 30 seconds, you know, we're able to push it out and, and, and help them. Here's the crazy thing. That morning, when I get up, I read my Bible, I spend some time in prayer, And what did I pray that morning? I prayed, God, give me an opportunity to serve and help and talk to my neighbors who live right across the street today. But I was hoping, like, not today, you know. Like, I I want, you know, can we pencil that in for Saturday, like mid-afternoon, you know, when I'm not busy doing something? I don't even remember what I was doing. It probably wasn't, it certainly wasn't important because I don't remember Right, but, but serving, that showed me I'm an arrogant guy because I don't want to take, take two minutes 
out of my time to help somebody else. It's their problem. I'm sure they can handle it. And that's not how you stand. We begin our spiritual life with humility. And we do that. You cannot be saved. You cannot accept Jesus as your Savior without the humility of saying, I'm a sinner. I can't fix it. I can't be good enough for God. And I need help. But we're not just saved in a moment of humility. God wants us to stay humble all through our lives and think of other people. Who have you served recently? And then the other thing, question, diagnostic question, know whether you're humble or proud is, who have you submitted to recently? Now this passage is saying, I am your shepherd, I am your elder, and I actually am older than some of you. We had a couple in their 80s over here in the first service, and I said, I'm your elder, and they're like, I don't know, bud. We got you by 30 plus years. You know, but so, so this is saying, you're to submit to me as your spiritual leader and shepherd. And so what if after the service, I went up to you and said, you know, as your spiritual leader and as a shepherd and pastor, I want you to submit to me. I'm going to tell you something to do. How would you respond to that? You don't even know what I'm going to say, but what, what, what emotion comes over you? You get your quills out and you're like, you on some kind of power trip? You don't tell me what to do. Who, who are you? What do you mean submit to you? I'm not going to submit to you. We don't like that word, do we? When, when we need to do it, submit. The most famous submit verse in the Bible, some of you could quote it, Ephesians 5.22, wives submit to your husbands, right? But what we don't often quote is the verse right before it, Ephesians 5.21, which says, all y'all, if you're from the south, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He's saying, you know what? Everybody needs to submit to one another. And wives, you need to understand this applies to you too and to your husband. And this is saying the same thing. In that passage, it said, in the same way, you who are younger need to submit to those who are older, which means the older are to submit to those who are younger. You're like, well, what does that mean? How do you actually do that? Who's really in charge? And so here's another illustration just this week. I'm so glad I have a family to talk about. So 12 times, you guys can vouch for me on this, maybe not 12 times a night, but almost every night when we're in the living room, Becky will say to me or to one of the boys, can you go turn the light off in the kitchen, right? I mean, all the time. Like I, I, and she's always very polite about it, which is really pretty amazing. Cause, you know, and, and so my response when Becky says, hey, could you turn the light off in the kitchen because I was just in there and I turned it and I left it on again, I, I, don't, I don't say, I'm not submitting to you, woman. You go turn your own light off. I'm the man of the house. And you submit to me, you go get it. No, that's not what I say, right? I'm like, oh, I forgot again. And I get up and I turn it off. And that's how I submit to my wife. Oh, you're, you're doing it wrong. No. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I'm modeling servant leadership and I'm modeling to my family and to my wife how you submit. 
right? And, th- and that's how we need to function, is, is, is to do this. And, and when you don't do this, it's out of pride. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get my way. It doesn't bother me that the light's on in the kitchen. It doesn't glare in my eyes. But, but we need to be different. We need to stand in humility and consider others better and above ourselves. And then we need to stand in courage as well. This verse goes on and it says in verses 7 and 8, it says, cast all your anxiety or all your cares on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. That's the third time in this letter that Peter says this. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We need to stand in courage. Um, People wrongly think about who is courageous many times. People might think that I am courageous to stand up in front of you. And there is a little bit of fear in my head right now. Like, what if I blank out? You know, what if, what if, I don't know, I look like Ben when I'm done? You know, what if, I don't know. It just, but this isn't really, this isn't very courageous because I'm not that scared. Real courage is doing the right thing when you're very afraid. That's real courage. And so many of you show and have a lot more courage than I do because most of the time I'm either oblivious to danger <laughs> or I just have an easygoing nature and I don't feel fear. But, but courage is important. It's a virtue that we need to, to lean into. And he's saying, you, you can trust God. This is why we can be courageous. This is why we don't have to worry about our worries because God is in control and we can give him our problems and worries and he can handle them. Now that doesn't take away your emotional fear. But again, this is the thinking aspect. I need to think the right things and in the right way. And it doesn't immediately change my emotions, but thankfully often in time, my emotions will follow. Emotions are great alarms terrible leaders. Our minds often don't have good alarms and we need to listen to our emotions when they're like, whoa, something's going on, pay attention. But our minds are what we need to follow. You know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And so cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And he's not saying, oh, don't worry about it. So a lot of times Becky or, you know, different people will Uh, tell me something they're worried about and afraid for. And I'm like, ah, you don't have to be afraid of that. Oh, that's no big deal. You know, that's that's not what Peter is saying. He's saying, actually, there are things to worry about. In fact, it might be worse than you even think. Because we have a supernatural predator called the devil who is after you. And he is just waiting to destroy and devour you. So he's not saying, don't be afraid, there's nothing to fear but fear itself. He's saying, no, no, there is something to be afraid of. But we can be courageous in the face of that because of who our God is. And we need to be praying for one another and praying for your church family and this community at this time. 
because the COVID winter is ending and people are, are saying, you know what, I think it's safe for me now to come out and I have the vaccine or the cases are five times lower than they were in December or whatever it is, eventually people are, are saying it's time. And so there's no physical danger, but there's the social anxiety. And I knew a man, a friend of ours, Daryl, who was a firefighter and um, had a heart attack later in life. And he told me about going into, I think it was Wegmans. And this guy has run into burning buildings, okay? This is a man's man. He's in Wegmans and all of a sudden he had a panic attack. And, and the closeness of the walls, even though they weren't that close, and all the people around him. And he said, it was all I could do to not run out of there. I walked as fast as I could to my truck. I got into my truck and I started sobbing uncontrollably. He said, I found out that my heart attack and heart surgery, that affects your emotions. And he says, and there was nothing I could do to stop this, this incredible fear and panic that I've never felt before in my entire life for just being in Wegmans. And there are thousands of people in our communities who have, their brains have been trained over the last 12 months. If you see people you don't know, it's danger. If you see a crowd, it'll kill you. And now that they know in their minds and increasingly as they're retraining their minds, that's not true. I still feel like it's true. And it's going to be really hard. And we need to pray and we need to be long-suffering and we need to step out in faith and throw those anxieties and say, okay, last time it didn't go so well, but I'm going to keep getting up and I'm going to keep trying. And, and, and live in courage, stand in courage. And then as we stand in courage, we need to identify our enemy. It was saying who our enemy was. Our enemy, the devil, prowls around seeking whom he may devour. And, and this is really important. Your enemy is not hypocritical politicians. Your enemy is not the media. Your enemy is not the greedy 1% or white supremacists or black supremacists. That, that's not who our enemy is. Our enemy is Satan. And all these people that causes problems and may attack you or be mean to you or, or, or disagree with you, they're prisoners of war that have been brainwashed by the enemy. They're not our enemy. We need to recognize that. Our enemy is Satan. He's called the prince and power of the air, the ruler of this world. That's our enemy. And then finally, um, and I want to spend a little bit of time on this because I think it's really important. How do you stand? Standing is done. The, the passage talks about resisting. So it says the enemy of the devil is, is prowling around and then here's what it says next. Resist him standing firm in the faith. It doesn't say run from Satan. It doesn't say hide from Satan. It doesn't say uh, give in to Satan. It, does, it says you need to stand and resist. What does that mean? Because you know the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. So here's what standing and resisting does not mean. It doesn't mean give in. Honestly, most churches throughout America today, and I would, I would even say most pastors, a lot of the pastors even I talk to, I would say are in this category. They're in the give in category. 
to Satan. Whatever the culture says, we thought it was wrong 20 years ago, but now we're going to say it's right because that's what the culture says. And we're just going to capitulate and give in and we're going to believe whatever they want us to believe and that they tell us to believe and the newest fad in belief is okay. And that is not what we are to do. You don't lie down to a lion. If it's a bear, a black bear, they say you can play dead. Don't play dead to a lion. Okay, that's not going to work. You don't give in. And, well, they don't attack me anymore. And I'm on the, that. Yeah, our enemies are not them who aren't attacking you anymore. Our enemies are the devil. It's Satan. And we need to not give in to him. If here, Here's a, a lot of people. Uh, it's hard to know whether you're giving in. Here's a good question to know whether you're truly taking a stand on God's word and what it really teaches, or if you're just being indistinguishable from, from the culture around you. Does the Bible teach anything I disagree with, but I'm willing to submit to anyway? If your answer is the Bible does not teach anything I disagree with, Jesus always follows me and always does what I want him to do and always stands for what I stand for. That's what Jesus does. Let me, let me suggest to you, that's not Jesus. That's a reflection of yourself. And your God looks strangely familiar to what's in the mirror. But if there are things in the Bible that you're like, man, that's not how I want to live. Man, I don't like that. I, 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 but it's what it says and I will submit to God. That, that's, a good, that's a good sign that you're not giving in. Um, the other response is to blend in, essentially to hide. The lion is stalking and I'm going to hide and, and maybe he'll pass me by and won't bother me. And again, this often confuses our culture and the loudest voices in our culture with the devil. And yeah, you might be able to hide from, here's how you hide in the world today. You just need to shut up about Jesus and what God's word teaches. You see, and you just keep quiet and silence is approval. If you don't speak up and say, no, that's not true and no, that's actually hurtful and that's not loving, then... You're just trying to blend in. And that, that's not what Jesus is telling us, what Peter is telling us to do here, what Jesus modeled for us to do. He didn't give in. That's why they, he didn't get to the cross because he was hiding. The problem was Jesus didn't keep his mouth shut. In fact, he was confronted by that. Some of the religious leaders said, uh, Rabbi, don't you know that you're offending us? With what you're saying? Jesus, I know exactly what I'm doing. I'm offending you because you're not standing for truth. And he wasn't a jerk about it, but you know, in a loving way, he, he didn't blend in. So this is what a lot of us think this passage means. All right, yeah, the, the devil, the lion, he's prowling. Let's hunt Satan down. Let's fight, let's boycott, let's, let's, let's take to the streets, let's, let's, let's show them that they can't do that. You can't do that to me. That's not what he's calling us to do. 
In fact, as I think of the fight, I think of Peter. Peter was a part of a political group in his day called the Zealots before he met Jesus. And the Zealots wanted to physically, through violence, overthrow the Roman occupation of Israel. And so the night that Jesus was betrayed, they had communion. Did you know when they were having communion, they were breaking, Jesus broke the bread, passing the cup out. Peter was armed. He had a sword at his side. And there's another disciple with a sword as well because at some point they said, we got two swords. And Jesus is like, oh, that's plenty. Let's go. And so then when the mob comes out to Jesus to arrest him, and we're all too familiar with the mob, over this last year, the mob of the summer burning the streets, the mob at the Capitol building in January, and the mob is coming for Jesus. They have clubs, and Peter's got a sword. He whips that thing out, and in the, in the altercation, he cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest, Malchus. This, the religious leaders of, of Israel at that time, they were, they were the ones initiating. They were the ones wanting Jesus dead. And so they sent their thugs out. And this guy, he loses his ear. And somehow Jesus, as only God could do, stops everything. And if you've ever been in a mob, you know that's impossible. You can't just go and stop the mob attacking a group of people and a group of people attacking back the mob. But that's what Jesus does and he reaches down and picks up the ear and he puts it onto Malchus's head and he heals him. And he says to Peter, those who live by the sword die by the sword. You put that thing away. I could call ten, ten legions of angels. This, this is happening because the scripture must be fulfilled. So Peter is in this position. You don't want me to fight you want me to stand with you? I don't know how to stand. And he ran. And I, and I see Christians doing that, many Christians who get into the fight and try to fight and then lose. Many times they, they do this, this next step and that they run away. Let me ask you this. If there's a lion, if there's any predator, this works for any predator, what's the last thing you want to do? Run. That's exactly what Satan wants. What does running look like for us Christians in our world? Running isn't giving in. No, running is separating. One of the greatest, uh, I think, most interesting examples of the running Christian is the Amish. 100 50 years ago or however long, 150, 200, I don't know how long Amish have been Amish, but at some point they decided we can't help the English. And that's what they call us or anybody who's not Amish. And so we're going to separate, we're going to run away and have our own little community and take care of ourselves and the rest of the world can burn. And many Christians of our stripe find this very attractive. 
We're gonna, and this has been going on since Christianity started. There are aesthetics in the early centuries of the church who would go out into a desert all by themselves. And then monasteries developed where, where let's get a Christian community behind these walls and we'll grow our own food and we'll, we'll, we'll teach ourselves education and, and, and block, block off the world because the world is tainted. And here's how the, I've heard this illustration many times in my life, multiple times. Jesus is like a white glove. The world is like mud. When you put a white glove in mud, what happens? The mud doesn't get any cleaner and the white glove gets filthy. You heard that? Old pastor, we all heard these stories. One of my favorite pastors, Tony Evans, here's what he said about that. He says, we give all the power to the mud and none to the blood. Jesus is not a white glove. He's a 4,000... PSI, four gallons a minute commercial pressure washer. That's what he is. And, and he tells us, and Jesus lived in such a way that he went out into the world and, and, and he changed the world. And he didn't run from it. If he had run, he would have lived to be an old man. He probably never would have died because he didn't have a sin nature. But he chose death because he chose to engage And here's what happens when you run from Satan. If you're a mature believer, if you're someone like me, I can run from Satan, and you know what I think? I think I will be fine. And me and mine might even be fine. But when you run from a lion, who does he take out? Your kids. The weak. The new believer that's sitting across from you the kids that aren't your kids. Because I'm in my Christian ghetto with my Christian school and my Christian restaurant and my Christian entertainment and my Christian friends. And... But he's going to get my friend's kids. And, and so we, we cannot run and separate ourselves. We need to engage. And that is, that is, that is hard for some of us. Some of us don't have any unsafe, unsafe friends. People far from God that we interact with every week, and that is wrong. It's as wrong as giving in and blending in and fighting. He wants us to stand. Talk to um, an acquaintance who I I just think the world of, um, Mark Weisgold. He's the elementary school principal at Elk Lake. And uh, I, I want to encourage all of us, you need to be praying for our principals. We've got Bob Ward here today, principal of Faith Mountain. We've got Eric Powers, high school principal. Um, Karen Rickey is the principal of our Daniel, where he goes to school at Lathrop Street. I don't know all the principals in the area's names. So, but, but we need to be praying for them because I tell you what, when they have a blinking light on their answering machine, you know what their stomachs probably do? Oh. Another criticism, another attack, another unhappy person who who is blaming me for problems and and decisions that are totally outside of my control that I can't do anything about anyway. You know, and just dealing with... So I was talking to Mark Mark Weisgold, and he's just such an encouraging guy, and he gave me this illustration. And I want to close with it because it just fits exactly what we're talking about. When you find yourself in hot water... How do you, the, the hot water of trials, the hot water of people who don't like you, who dismiss you, who, who are unkind to you. 
How do you respond to that hot water? Some people respond to hot water like a carrot. It weakens you, it breaks you down, and it softens you up. That's not what God wants. That's not the response God wants. That's not why God has brought these trials into your life. He doesn't want to break you down. Other people, though, they don't respond as a carrot. They've seen carrots and they've learned. They respond like an egg and they just get harder and tougher and they put barriers up in their life to keep people away and at arm's distance. They're the separators. They're the runners. They're saying, you fooled me before. I won't be fooled again. I had a bad experience. I won't have a bad experience again. And they just get hard. God doesn't want you to be an egg. That's not why he's introduced trials and difficulties into your life. Here's what God wants to do in the trials of your life. He wants you to be like these coffee beans. What happens to a coffee bean when you put it in hot water? It bleeds into that water and transforms the water into something beautiful and delicious. I was told after the first service, though, one of the things you have to do to a coffee bean before you even put it in hot water, what do you got to do? You got to roast it. And some of the most powerful voices in our community right now are Christians who've been roasted with cancer, with divorce, with wayward kids, with friends who've committed suicide or overdosed, and they just have been roasted. And now they're in hot water. And now that is the other thing, you crush them. 700 years before Jesus was born, this is what Isaiah prophesied about him. Surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering. We considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our iniquities. He was crushed for our transgressions. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we were healed. Jesus showed us how to stand in the anvil, in the water, in the roasting, and how to transform a trial into a triumph, and how to change those around us who hate us into people who love and follow God. And it's not by fighting them, and it's not by running from them, and it's not by giving in to them. It's by standing with Christ and showing them his love. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for preaching this sermon to me this week and for opening my eyes to what we really, what I need to do. And God, I am not a giving in kind of guy and I'm not a hider and I'm not a runner. Well, actually, I am a runner. I, I, I am comfortable separating. I'm comfortable cutting people off when you want me to engage. So God, help me, forgive me, my sin of, of running.
And God, help me to be like you who could have cut us off, man, and started over. The world is hopeless. Bob is hopeless. But you didn't do that. You sent Jesus. You sent him to stand, to engage, to bleed into the hot water, to make a a triumph out of a tragedy and out of the trials. And God, I just pray that you'd help me to do that, help me to lead this church in doing that. God, may, may hundreds of us be different, not answer insult for insult, argument for argument, but to love and to bleed into this broken world so that you can change it and so that you can make something beautiful. In Jesus' name, amen.